Hello, and welcome to the Craft Brewed Music Podcast, the official podcast of Craft Brewed Music, the music discovery app that streams better music for serious listeners. Here we explore and get to know the creators of that music. I'm Brian Horner, founder and curator of Craft Brewed Music, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Aaron Stamen, a Craft Brewed Music artist. just heard Vermont by saxophonist Doug Mosier from his current uh, Ear Up Records release, There There. Uh, thanks a lot for, for being here, Doug. Yeah, thanks for having me. As you can hear, he's a very high-level player and composer um, and also has other passions in his life as well. He's been a first-grade teacher and is currently working on his doctorate at Harvard, studying language and literacy interventions for elementary school students. What I love about uh, your music is its authenticity, not just your writing and style, but your tone as well. Oh, thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. Brian and I, um, in the last uh, few months, uh, around the same time, read uh, Victor Wooten's book, um, The Music Lesson. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I haven't read it. I've, I've seen it pop up in places, and I think I've heard Jeff talk about it, but um, I, I haven't read it yet. His uh, it's it's an interesting and uh, kind of engaging imp- approach. Uh, each each uh, chapter of the book is dedicated to an element of music, and kind of the ov- overarching theme is that there's an overemphasis on the notes in people who are learning to be uh, musicians, on stringing notes together into melodies and stacking them in harmonies, and at the uh, at the expense of phrasing, harmony, groove, articulation, all these other elements that are equally important. And what struck me listening to, to Southern Lights and to There There, um, the two albums, uh, is that there seems to be a showcasing of three very underrepresented elements in music, particularly among young musicians. And those are tone, as Brian already mentioned, uh, dynamics, and then space, uh, which is that last one is an element I find that tends to be more mature, older musicians value that more in their music. And yet, in both these uh, recording efforts, that seems to be a very featured element that that struck me when I was listening to it. I'm wondering how intentional that is as a, uh, a compositional and performance force in your uh, in your music, or is it just because you're old? <laughs> well, I'm only 34. I mean, maybe maybe I'm reaching the end soon. At which point, I'll say I'm old. But <laughs> I. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I think I'm honored that you've identified those three aspects of the recording because those are things that I most enjoy in music, you know, from to speak to tone first. You know, I, I remember when I was in high school or middle school, I was 
first starting to play, had a little jazz band with some friends in the town I grew up in. And somebody mentioned Ben Webster to me. And so I got, you know, one of his recordings and he's a guy that doesn't play a lot of notes, but man, he plays melodies better than anybody. And he's got this rich, dark, huge sound and, you know, it's dynamically rich. And I think, you know, him, and then of course I checked out Coltrane early on, Wayne Shorter, and then I think all the sax players um, are musicians in general, but if we want to just speak specifically about saxophonists, you know, they all just have, you can hear their sound and in one second, you know, you know, it's Joe Henderson or Charles Lloyd or Gary Bartz or Kenny Garrett or Charlie Parker or Jan Garbarek or, you know, it's just, you just know it. And so I think that's something I've always really most liked about saxophone. I also think saxophone can, can be a harsh instrument to hear. And so, um, you know, a really warm, unique sound always kind of grabs me right away. And, and all those players, a lot of those players use a lot of space, you know, um, guy like Jan Garbarek's like, you know, renowned for just leaving vast amounts of space. Um, but you know, Lovano or Ben Webster, all, I mean, there's just, they use, they, they utilize space in such a great way. And I also really like ambient music like Brian Eno and <laughs> there's a lot of space there. So I think, you know, over the years I've, I've come to enjoy more space in music because as someone who's not just a musician, but an educator, I, I'm a consumer of music. So whereas I used to listen to music, yes, I, re- I got a lot of enjoyment out of it, but it was also, you know, an influence on, on me as a player, but I also consume music as someone, you know, separate from music now, you know, I listen for enjoyment, for relaxation, for excitement, whatever it is. And I think with that, I've, I've come to really enjoy while I love wild music, I've also come to equally enjoy some relaxing kind of very uh, music that has a lot of space. So, you know, Brian Eno and a number of other classical composers that utilize that. So, so uh, yeah, thanks for picking up on that. That's what we were going for. (laughs) Yeah. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished indeed. So when we were talking earlier, you mentioned that your, your wife's family lives in Nashville and you moved there around 2010, I guess you said, and now of course you're in, uh, in Boston. What, um, was music, what brought you to Nashville or her family or? Yeah, it was kind of a mixture of both. We were, we, we both went to school in Los Angeles and we stuck, uh, around an extra year. So the year after we graduated, we stayed in LA for a year and I was never, I, a lot of my best musical friends are in, in LA in addition to Nashville now, but never really liked Los Angeles that much. Um, so we were definitely ready to leave and we had narrowed it down to Nashville or, or Seattle, Aaron. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I originally really wanted to go to Seattle, but you know, the cost of living was expensive at the time. I'm sure it's even more so it now. It has but, not improved. Yeah. <laughs> but we also didn't know anybody there. It was kind of just like, you know, there were some great musicians that I knew of who were, you know, people that I was, I were fans of and, you know, wasn't necessarily going to be a part of that scene. And then there was Nashville where it was, you know, ridiculously affordable in 2010, we had family and, um, we already had some musical connections. And so it, it just seemed like a no brainer at that point. Yeah. Let's go to Nashville and, and, and try it out. And I had a blast there. I really enjoyed it. You know, it was a great place. I owe everything that I have in both music and, um, you know, my career in education to living in Nashville. So it's, it was a really good city to me. 
And did you meet uh, John Estes after moving there? Yeah, it's actually funny. I met John uh, at a jam session a couple of months into living there, and I did not play well. I think they called it noon <laughs> that I like forgot the bridge too, and it was bad. But Cassie sang, and John came up to Cassie and, and and you know said some nice things, and I met him, and then I didn't see him for a year or two, and then I started to hang more with Coffin, you know, Jeff Coffin, and he would have sessions at his house and he was, you know, so nice to include me in those. And then I met John at one of his sessions and we started talking about music and we both liked each other's playing and realized we liked the same music. And, you know, I was really into some obscure New York guys and John knew of those guys and was also a fan. And we kind of just headed off, hit it off in Nashville. While I love the jazz scene. It, I didn't know, I hadn't really met anybody that was into some of the more kind of specific uh, artists like Jim Black, um, great drummer uh, from New York, Chris Speed, saxophonist, beautiful sound. And and John knew all those people. So we hit it off and started playing. And and I also have John to thank a lot for, for kind of bringing out the quiet in me because I used to just love playing loud and um even though i always had a quiet sound that was always a criticism i actually got was that oh you know you're not loud enough sometimes and it was playing with john you know it's just bass and sax and i realized oh man this is so fun you know there's no clutter you know it's just one other musician it's maximum listening i don't have to use a mic we're playing quiet and john also does not he he (laughs) He's turned his back on playing really loud and lots of notes. And so I think, you know, I developed that playing with him because he had an influence on me and we'd play and, you know, I'd say, ah, let's try something different, a little more spacious. And uh, so I definitely owe a lot of the evolution of my playing to, to playing with him and kind of collaboratively working through, you know, and improving so I, our playing style. And so I read, so you guys then ultimately came out with the Southern Lights album together as a duo. And I think I read that that was the result of sort of some recorded improvisation, uh, improvisational sessions that you'd had. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. We just, he said, Hey, come over, let's play. And, uh, and I remember it was the coldest day of the year. Um, I think it was like nine degrees was the high that day. And uh, so I was teaching at the time school was canceled um, because it was too cold. I don't think this would <laughs> start. And uh, so I went over to his place and we played and it just, it worked immediately. We just started playing and, and like a melody came and it just worked. And we thought, man, this is awesome. So we just started recording, uh, getting together regularly over the course of probably a year, maybe a little over a year. And sometimes some of the recordings on that record, like Bag in the Wind, I think literally he just started, what you hear there was out of nowhere it just happened it worked wow. out and and other tunes you know there would be this magic and then we'd listen back and think oh there's a tune there let's work on it and you know we kind of uh you know hash out the rest of the melody but some of them are just um are just pure improvisations and that's when i i realized man this is john is the we just have a musical connection that i really hadn't experienced you know in a duo setting ever i had a pianist a friend richard sears i grew up with where i had that um that connection and and some of the people i went to school with but that was the first person in nashville where it was like man i don't need anybody else it's just bass and sax it's quiet um there's not as i said not too much clutter and we're just thinking on the same 
wavelength. It was, it was really fun. So it was a blast to play, you know, and, and record all that stuff. You mentioned uh, Bag in the Wind, uh, which I was telling Brian earlier, is uh, one of my favorite tracks off Southern Lights. Oh, awesome. Uh, which uh, features John on uh, upright bass, I believe, in that in that mm-hmm. tune. Yeah, and I and when I listen to that one, um, <clears throat> I honestly want to watch the short artsy film that's connected with it. Like I feel like there's just, just like a you know a, a discarded plastic bag just float any ur- the urban scene we've all seen where it's kind of depressing that it's litter, but it's also <laughs> kind of beautiful that it's, it's whimsically dancing along the street. <laughs> yeah, but 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 it's 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 the music is so descriptive that it feels like this, the kind of music that should be paired with um, an artfully shot uh, plastic bag uh, roaming the streets of New York. Oh, well, thanks. Well, it's interesting you say that because it's actually, we named it after the fact. One of my favorite authors, Ted Kuzer, he's written some prose. He's also the only poet that I really enjoy reading. I'm not, I'm not against poetry, but it never really, you know, I wasn't a consumer of it until I read his and he writes about simple nondescript things. He lives in rural Nebraska and he was the poet laureate for a few years. Anyways, he also wrote some children's books while that came out while I was teaching one of which is called bag in the wind about a a plastic bag that blows out of a landfill and all the different people's lives in rural Nebraska it goes through. So, Hmm. um, so yeah, that's great that you evoked that, uh, that imagery. Listening to how how uh, all the tunes on that album are conceived, um, I'm reminded of of times where we had uh, tunes come out of you know long form instrumental uh, you know jams or working out things, and uh, uh, they never ended in something that uh, that featured brevity. Like that, all you know, we, there was always uh, too much of the stuff was 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 left uh, left in the, the final recording, and virtually all the tunes on Southern Lights are extremely compact they're 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 very they're very short there's a you know really nice scale to them uh with the statement of the melody and then the embellishments and then i mean i think virtually all of them ended under three minutes and it's uh i'm i'm enamored of how you you take these long form um improvisatory fantasies and edit them into something that's a a little lyrical tune yeah, well, that's um, 
even the even the improvisations before they were um, cut down, the ones that you know we re, re, reworked into a tune were still pretty short. You know, there's first of all, John's a master editor, and so we approach when I play music with him. I think subconsciously that's a part of. I know John uh, doesn't. He's not a huge fan of things going on forever. I mean, he'll do any, he, he loves music. So it's not like he'll, it's an exclusionary thing where he's like, I'm not going to be a part of something that's long. I mean, he's not like, my point being that he essentially, he, he really enjoys um, succinct music. And so I think I knew that maybe going in. And so, um, and I, and you know, there's the old phrase, you know, always leave somebody wanting more rather than whatever, you know, wanting less. And so, um, those, those improvisations, maybe it's also the nature of, you know, it just being bass and saxophone and we're not playing over, you know, standard harmony, you know, contrafacts or standards or something that, you know, would kind of propel a long form improvisation. You know, we just, once we ran out of ideas, we just stopped and you can, you know, a lot of the tunes are fairly simple, which is what we were going for. So, you know, you can only explore a simple thing so much before it becomes annoying and redundant. So perhaps we had that going on our side as well, but, but John is a really, he is, prioritizes being succinct. And I, I have really enjoyed that about working with him, especially as a saxophonist, we have a tendency to go on forever. (laughs) (laughs) And nobody wants to listen to a saxophone go on forever when there's just a bass behind him. So (laughs) we also had that, I had that going in my favor. (laughs) And so at what point did it go from being kind of sitting around playing with the uh with the tape rolling so to speak to let's you know let's make let's make this an album let's release this thing yeah you know i that's a good question i i think maybe a couple times in you know a couple meetings we uh you know realized oh this there's something special here let's just keep playing and record them and then we finally had a bunch of tunes and then it became well we've got you know x number of tunes i we got to come up with some more to make it a full length record and let's do it. And, and I think it was pretty early on that we, we knew that we had something that we'd want to put out. And so it came out on Jeff Coffin's ear up records label. Was he kind of, had he been hearing this stuff all along and encouraging it, or did you bring it to him as a finished? I think project? we gave it to him as a finished product. He knew we had been playing together um, and b- had become good friends. And of course we were always over at Jeff's house, you know, he, Jeff's just awesome. He's just the glue for the scene there. You know, so many right. people meet other music, just musicians through Jeff. And, uh, you know, so we were always over there. He knew about it. He might've heard one or two songs, but he hadn't heard the whole project, um, until the end. One of my, uh, favorite tracks on uh, the Southern Lights album is, uh, Afternoon. Mm. Uh, I love, uh, and it's, I think it's one of the shortest ones as well. Yeah. Uh, but it has, you know, these lush chord progressions in the bass, uh, with your very lyrical melody. And then it, it coalesces at the end. You're both in total unison for the, for the last 30 seconds or so of the song. And that's where this, this, uh, element of, uh, tone comes back for me, uh, because you both have, um, instrument tones that kind of feature, other ambient noises from the instrument, whether it be, you know, reed noise, the air, the keypads on the sax. And then mm-hmm. he's playing um, uh, an acoustic bass guitar, I think, for most of the album, if not all mm-hmm. the album. Uh, and so you get more fret noise, you get more of the idiosyncrasies of the wooden box that makes the sound. Mm-hmm. And there's something just very organic when you guys slip into 
unison like that, where the tone really becomes and how those tones blend uh, becomes the prominent feature of the song. Yeah, that that's thanks for bringing that one up. That, that's one of my favorite tunes to play with with John. Um, I think we were we had played it as a tune. I think I brought that one in. That actually might have been a completed tune that I brought to the session and uh, or you know to our getting together and we played it and it might have been John's idea to actually you know kind of just op- start improvising and then we would come together at the end and uh, it was really it, that's one of my favorite ones on the record um, and yeah you're I mean his his sound on it's a I think it's a Tacoma it's got a, a, a sound hole up at the top of the uh, the body and it's a five string nylon i think acoustic uh, bass guitar oh, maybe that's and, it there's something about that sound that was so organic and then combined yeah. with, with your tone which is likewise you know has like all of the ambient features of a, of a wind instrument uh really felt like just like two guys like in the woods somewhere oh thanks yeah and, and we're i guess we're in the same tonal register too as well on a lot of it and yeah, I love that instrument. I mean, and and John has it tuned a certain way. I think it's almost standard tuning, but maybe one of the strings, the, the fifth string is tuned up a half step or something. And it just has this really open sound. And he always, you know, he finger picks it. And he, he always, a lot of the stuff just started with John playing something and then I would play over it, you know, and he would always just start with something that was awesome. <laughs> take a quick intermission for a word from our sponsor, which is us. Craft Brewed Music is a curated streaming service that streams better music for serious listeners. Sometimes we hear that people want to hear more of the songs we play on the podcast. There are a couple of ways to hear more Craft Brewed Music. 
You can download the app from the App Store or Google Play and get a free trial. Or you can become a patron of the podcast on Patreon, linked in the description of each episode, and get exclusive bonus episodes containing extra music and a sampling of our other artists. We'll help you discover music off the beaten path so that you become the person your friends turn to for recommendations, and we split our income with the artists. Craft Brewed Music, better music for serious listeners. To hear samples and find out more about us, visit craftbrewedmusic.com. So it's interesting to me that you guys had this duo project and then you each went on to release solo projects uh, that you were both featured on prominently. Um, Mm -hmm. And yours is kind of, I think, a really nice extension and evolution. They're there. Your current album came out in early 2020. Um, A slightly larger ensemble, a quartet, I think, for the most part, and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, with John playing bass on it. uh, And... um, some great electric guitar work on there and drums as well. Um, so what was that evolution like, you know, going from, from, you know, making a debut as a duo to, you know, doing your solo thing, but still working together. Yeah. You know, John and I had played a lot with John, uh, Josh Hunt, the drummer. Mm -hmm. Um, Josh is one of my favorite drummers and one of my favorite musicians. And he's a really good person too, like John. And so it's funny. I, when I first met, Josh, when I moved to town, I was constantly pestering him. Come on, man, play louder. I want you, you know, we're playing a tune that's, you know, we're playing a Coltrane tune or something, you know, just bash the cymbals. And he would always say, well, I I don't, I want to make sure I can hear you. And, you know, he was very diplomatic about it. And, you know, now when we recorded the record, it's like, that's all I want is somebody who's going to play the room. And we actually recorded that record live in one room at the bomb shelter where John was working at the time as an engineer and producer. And, um, you know, Josh just played the room perfectly. I mean, it, it worked. I mean, we were all in a circle essentially in a small room with the ceilings weren't that tall. Um, and, uh, but, but anyways, I, so, you know, I'd been playing with Josh with John for a while in a trio setting, which I really enjoyed. And then I got called to do a free jazz gig with a pianist in town, named Matt Endall uh, mm-hmm. in, in Nashville, great pianist, and was at a club somewhere off Nolensville Pike at the time that is no, no longer open. And, One of the uh, many free jazz clubs in Nashville. Yeah, well, it's the only free jazz club I did. I, <laughs> I remember writing Matt and saying, so do I need to bring any tunes or do, you know, do I need to any tunes you want to play that I should look at? And it's like, no, man, it's free jazz. We're just going to play. And I thought, OK, this is awesome. I, I thought this day would never come. And uh, and so I showed up and I think Jordan Pearlson was playing drums, uh, who had moved from New York. Great drummer. Uh-huh. Um, and Greg Bryant was playing electric bass. Awesome. And Matt Endall. And then this guitarist who had moved from New York, who was friends with Jordan, who was living in Knoxville at the time, named Mike Baguetta. And the, the show was awesome because it was basic. If I remember correctly, it was Greg and I were constantly trying to pull it. There was this tension where uh, Mike and Matt were going way out and Greg and I would go there, but we'd kind of pull it back somehow. And but I remember thinking, wow, Mike, what a great player, you know, a beautiful yes. sound, even when it got you know, wild and woolly. Uh, it, he just had a sound and a way of playing that I hadn't heard before, but it reminded me of all my favorite guitar players. But then again, I'd never heard anything like that. So, you know, we started getting together and playing and I just knew that I wanted to record with, with Mike at some point. And then it just worked out. We actually never played as a group until that recording, all four of us. (laughs) 
Wow. No kidding. We had all played. I mean, Mike and Josh had never met, but, you know, I, uh, Mike, uh, John and I had played. And of course, John, myself and Josh had played, but the four of us had never played. And it was, I kind of took, I went out on a limb and just thought, you know, I think this is going to work out. And it did, it worked perfectly. And Mike can be, you know, Mike's such a great player because he can be as far out as it gets and it can get loud, but he can also play beautifully and he can mix the two and he just, he played perfectly on the record and he and Josh are great kind of dynamic in their own right. So. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I want to, to thank you. I mean, Brian knows this. I'm always looking for my next guitar crush. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, if, if we ever, you know, master CRISPR and gene editing, I will try to take the best elements of Bill Frizzell and Jeff Beck and put them together. But I think Mike yeah. already did it. Yeah. Yeah. He, that's awesome. You said, yeah. He, he, he's just got so much going on. Um, and he's got a great, he's got a number of albums and his more recent stuff is more, if I, if I remember correctly, a little more rock oriented, but with an out twist, which is awesome. But he has a record called Spectre. That's just beautiful. And the last track on there, he does a, a war orphans by, uh, Ornette Coleman, just solo guitar. And it's, it's incredible. So, I mean, he can play the prettiest stuff, have the warmest, richest sound and then he can go the opposite direction and it somehow is it always is rooted in the same concept um i I think he's he's just an incredible guitar player and he's a great person too so it's all a a win-win he's a fantastic compliment to uh to to the songs on there there yeah it really gives the record an incredible vibe it reminds me of i've been really into the charles lloyd and the marvels records Mm. in the last year or so and it's which of course is bill frizzell on guitar but uh it kind of reminds me of that vibe a little bit. Uh, I guess yeah. because he bends no, so right. much too, and, and those records have the pedal steel thing happening. I think maybe that's part of it too, but it's 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 really, really a great uh, yeah. effect that the four he of you d- have. He does this great technique where I think he's pulling up on the tremolo bar and getting this like almost steel guitar-y kind of Hawaiian guitar uh-huh. vibe yeah. going. Yeah, and he's got this thing that I like to call the silencer. <laughs> it's a little button on his guitar that mutes. Oh, the, yeah, the kill okay. switch. Yeah. And I just love that. And I think he, I remember he had gotten a new guitar right before the session and he hadn't had the, the kill switch or the, the silencer put on yet. And, uh, so I, I said, make sure you bring your, your, your old guitar with, with that. And he uses it, I think on, um, Vermont actually. And it's just one of my favorite, it, it's just all these little things that he does that just, they're so fun to listen to. I remember the first time we played Vermont, I was like, man, I don't even, I should just play the melody and, and, we recorded a uh, kind of a rough, I wouldn't say it was a rough version. We were just jamming and then, you know, we just threw up some mics and I wanted to record it just to listen back. And I remember I would skip past my kind of garbage solo and it would vibe out for five minutes after that. And it was just the rhythm section and Mike not soloing, just kind of creating sounds, playing chords, using the, the silencer and the, get into these rhythmic things. And that, it was just so fun to listen to. Um, so when we played it in that session, I really tried to think, don't approach this like it's a saxophone solo. I'm playing over Mike um, and the band.
actually inspired by a Danish guitar player, Jakob Bro, um, who's also one of my favorite guitar players. I haven't met him <laughs> someday, maybe, probably not though, but he's just an incredible uh, guitarist. He's kind of like the, what John calls the Danish Bill Frizzell, but, but I, he's more of a minimalist, which I enjoy more so even. Um, and he recorded an album with Paul Motion, one of my favorite drummers, mm-hmm. Ben Street on bass, Bill Frizzell, and Jakob Bro in stereo, which is like a dream come true. And then Lee Konitz playing alto over it. And it, and it was, there's a tune on there. I forget what it's called, but uh, it's, it, the whole record is basically guitar laying this beautiful kind of pad of sound with, you know, drums, not doing anything crazy, bass anchoring it in a tonality. And then Lee Konitz just kind of soloing over the top, but it's not a linear, it's just kind of, thoughts that come to mind and there's no linear trajectory. And I just love that about, Hmm. about that recording. And so I think um, Mike continued that, uh, that trend of just creating a pad to play under where we're playing off of each other, but it's not really a linear solo and, you know, it it doesn't really go anywhere, but that's kind of what was going for just to make something aesthetically kind of create a tonal palette to just vibe out on for a few minutes. Um, And which is inspired by Vermont, my, uh, my favorite state, I think the most beautiful place I've ever been, not because it has the the dramatic extremes like Yosemite or, you know, Colorado or the West, but because it's just rolling mountains and hills of green with no billboards anywhere. And it's just, mm. it's just kind of, you drive through it on the interstate and think, wow, I don't think I've ever driven on an interstate and looked at something more appealing. <laughs> mm. Who is Clive the dog? Clive the dog. <laughs> He's my dog. <laughs> He's a, uh, a mutt. We got him from the shelter, the Humane Society in Nashville on, uh, I think, Osceola, right off Whitebridge. And uh, he's just a great a great dog. And so I thought, i got to write a tune for Clive. And yeah, listen, listen to that song. I want, I want to meet the character that that song is based <laughs> on. Because uh, there's so many great things about that tune. Um, you know, as a kind of a departure from the Southern Lights tunes, this one has some more interesting and whimsical, you know, chordal modulations mm-hmm. in the, uh, in the form and then pairing with some of the playful stuff that, uh, that Mike is doing on the guitar. Yeah. It's just, there's something so charming uh, about that and kind of like unexpected as these little shifts occur as well, that uh, it was, it was kind of like bag in the wind, a very descriptive song. I was like, I want to, I want to see the video portion of this. <laughs> as I'm listening to it. Oh, well, thanks. Well, if Clive could communicate with you, I'm sure he would be be honored to be (laughs) spoken of that way. I mean, he's a great dog. He kind of just, you know, he doesn't do anything too unexpected, but he does little quirky things that are hilarious. But overall, he's just kind of a mellow guy. I mean, I remember we got him from the shelter. He 
he we opened the little gate door that he was in and he was just curled in a ball and he kind of lifted his head up and walked over to us and i thought that's 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 the dog i want that's we're going to be compatible and he gets excited and then he just mellows out and which was kind of what we were going through in that tune you know i mean there's it gets a little playful at times and then it's but at the end of the day it's kind of a mellow tune it it, it doesn't get too crazy <laughs> the educator part of your career as well. And I know for myself early on after, after college, there was always kind of a, of a struggle. I'd be, I'd do a, a music business thing for a little while. And then I would do a, you know, musician teacher thing for a while. And it wasn't until I started my own business when I got to kind of design my life that I, that I found a balance there. And, uh, as I mentioned to you, Doug, in an email, Aaron is a, guitarist, singer, songwriter, as well as a neurologist. And um, so Aaron and I were kind of talking about that and, and, and wondering if for you, the educator and musician thing was a balance or if there was struggle there or if that varied by kind of season. Yeah. First of all, it's really interesting to hear about, you know, your your experiences with music and also to hear, Aaron, that you, you're, you're a neurologist, so at which you might relate to uh, what I'm going to talk about here, but I'd say the 
the uh, the seed was planted unknowingly um, early on. Maybe maybe when I was in high school, I think it was in high school. The L.A. Times ran an article about a concert pianist who was also some sort of doctor. I don't remember if he was a surgeon or a radiologist or oncologist or what exactly. But, um, and I just remember thinking, I think he would get up at five or five 30 in the morning and practice before he'd go in to the office, or maybe it was earlier. And he just had this dual career where, you know, I mean, being a concert pianist is pretty difficult task. There are not a lot of, you know, opportunities available. You got to kind of make it to the very top. And then of course, being a doctor of any kind is also pretty arduous task to get to. Most people don't make it. So the fact that this, this person, I wish I remembered his name, uh, could do both was kind of piqued my interest. And then when I was in college, um, one of my best friends, my roommate, Sam, he's a brilliant saxophonist. He's probably also one of the smartest people I know. Um, he's based out of LA. He's, he's doing quite well for himself. He actually was in, um, a pre-med program at USC where we were at, where he was basically admitted to the medical school as a freshman in college, given that he would complete all prerequisites. And um, uh, then, you know, he would basically be on track to go be a doctor. And I guess one of his requirements for one of these classes that he was taking at the time was that he interview somebody. So we went to see Eddie Henderson and uh, Bill Stewart and John Schofield. And I forget who was playing bass. Maybe it was, uh, it'll come to me. Um, and Eddie Henderson, trumpet player, played with Herbie Hancock in the late 60s, early 70s, um, was a doctor, actually. He became a psychiatrist. And I think he was oh. doing his residency in San Francisco when he met and started playing with Herbie. And, oh. and I, I was just hanging out with Sam, you know, my buddy, while he was interviewing Eddie Henderson. And, and uh, you know, I think that was I was internalizing that he was he'd say, yeah, I'd go I'd work all day and then I'd go out late and play a gig with hang out with Herbie and those guys. And then I'd have to get up the next day and go to my residency. And, but you know, he had a dual career. So I think that seed was planted and then moving to Nashville, I think it was more out of necessity. You know, I didn't really, you know, I was trying to get gigs, but it's not like you, you get gigs the day you move there, um, you know, enough to pay all the bills. So I started substitute teaching for metropolitan Nashville public schools. And, uh, I really enjoyed it. You know, I did it for two and a half years and I, I just had a blast each year. You know, you start to, you figure out your age group, then you start, you know, I, I subbed in a ton of schools. I kind of saw the layout of the city. I learned a lot about the city through the schools. And then I kind of settled on my, you know, handful of schools that I had a good relationship with the teachers and I got to know the students. And so I kind of became a regular sub at those schools. And, uh, I just decided, you know, I think I want to, I want to do this. You know, I can, most of my gigs are in the evening. And if I get called for a recording session, a lot of it, you know, being a horn player are overdubs and there's a lot of flexibility. Um, I could do them after I was doing, you know, gigs, um, and recording sessions after, you know, the school day was over. So I thought, well, you know, I'll have a little more financial security. And then I had, um, I used to get a bunch of collapsed lungs. And so I had to have some lung surgeries. And when I was in Nashville, I was, I I had a a bad collapsed lung and they had to redo a pretty major surgery. So I couldn't play for, I'd had a a bunch, a couple collapsed lungs prior to the surgery. So I basically couldn't play for gosh, five or six months. It seemed like, 
And I found myself, you know, when the nurses would say, oh, what do you do? And I kind of found myself saying more often than not that I was a teacher or substitute teacher more so than I was a musician. And that kind of resonated with me like, well, maybe this is, I had already decided I was going to, you know, get my teaching license. But I think that's when I really knew that I wanted to do teaching. I valued it as much as, hmm. as music and found a lot of fulfillment. And I kind of thought, well, I like doing both. So why not do both? And fortunately, I live in a city where I can do both. So I kind of went from there and I got my teaching credential. I did a, you know, a fast track program over the summer. Um, and I had been, you know, in the classroom for two and a half years prior to that as a sub. So, um, and I worked at the school that I ended up getting hired as a first grade teacher at a school that I had subbed at a bunch, um, Whitsett Elementary School. And I rode the change of being one of the lowest performing schools in the state to, uh, you know, there, we were on the, the priority list, which is the, the list you don't want to be on if you're a school to, um, being taken off the priority list. And, you know, the principal who came in my second year is still there. And the school is a, you know, a, a magnet school now, and it's just doing amazing. So wow. it was really a rewarding experience to be a part of a, a transformation of a school. And, uh, and I do miss the classroom a lot, but but I, so I, I, a very long way to answer your question is, I think it was out of, um, you know, personal wanting fulfillment in life, but also out of necessity being that at the time I became a substitute teacher because I needed to find, you know, some extra income to supplement when I didn't have gigs, but it quickly turned into, you know, a passion. And so, and the two things were able to coexist and still, still do, I take it. I'm sure you're, you're pressed yeah. time now. Yeah, you know, and, and, you know, I moved up here and know a lot of musicians. And of course, I'm, I can't make the late night hang trying to play music with all these classes and, and research. But one of my best friends from college, um, who was in that group, that crew I mentioned with Richard and, and Sam uh, and our friend Hans and a number of other players is Lewis Cole, who's, um, we lived, uh, we were roommates, or not roommates, but we lived in the same house our senior year of college. Um, and he, uh, another one of these musicians that the first time I played with him, it was like, oh, this is it. We, we just anticipate every move. Um, but he's done quite well for himself. Um, and he takes a big band out in the summers, mostly to Europe to do the festivals. And I've been fortunate that he's asked me to do it. So, um, you know, I, I say yes when I can, and it works with my schedule. So I, I'm really lucky in that I, if I didn't have that, I would not be doing nearly as much music. But that that kind of satisfies that you know, I get to play music with some of my favorite musicians. And then, and then I come back to Nashville, you know, and I get to play with, with John and, you know, Jeff and Mike and Josh and all the other music, you know, incredible musicians that live there. And that's enough, you know, and over time I'll meet folks up here, but you know, that's, that satisfies my, uh, my thirst for, for playing music. And so when you get that identity question, like the, the nurses gave you when you're in, in, the, in the hospital, uh, how, how do you answer that? Like, what are you? Uh, now I say, you know, I'm an edu- you know, I'm an educator. Um, I'll say, you know, I taught first grade and uh, for five years, I worked for the school district for seven and a half. Um, I'm a researcher now. I, I study educational research and literacy interventions, and I'm also a musician. So I give them a longer answer. Uh, <laughs> depends on how, how interested they are. But, um, but I identify with all a teacher, you know, a, you know, a, a student now, a researcher, and, uh, and a musician. And, uh, you know, I, I try to carve out time to do 
you know, at least two of them. I'm obviously, well, I am a teacher. I guess I am a TA for classes now with master students, but, um, but, you know, I identify with all those. So I, I try to carve time out to still play, even if I, you know, I'm not doing a gig for a while. Um, and cause it's an important outlet and it's just a different part of my brain that I really enjoy using and can, it connects me to, you know, earlier Doug pre pre-education. <laughs> Yeah. It reminds me of my passions when I was younger and, and how that's an important part of going forward. Yeah, I usually tell my patients that uh, when they ask me about my life, uh, I tell them I'm just like a shredding guitar player and I got this day job. <laughs> that's a better response. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron and I were discussing the kind of perverse attachment that our society has between how you make your money and what you quote are, you know, yeah. and that those things obviously do not have to be aligned. And like you said, there's not, there's not just one answer or one short answer to that question. And, so and I'm not going to lie. I'm sure that, that, that society's expectation, you know, had some sort of subconscious effect, you know, at the time, you know, I was playing music and I was enjoying it, but it wasn't like I was making a boatload of money. Um, you know, I was, you know, just working, trying to make, make it work. Right. And, uh, and I think, you know, probably there's a part of me that, you know, there was some more security, job security and teaching, but, but I truly, you know, it was a passion and something I felt very passionate about. So what maybe was an initial catalyst might've been, you know, that, that societal expectation was easily supplanted by, you know, just being very passionate and excited to wake up every day and go teach and, and, uh, and, and teaching's a lot like music, you know, you, <laughs> a lot like jazz, I think, you know, you get up, you have an idea, you, you're trained in how to manage a classroom, how to teach, but you, you kind of have to improvise every day because there's something that's thrown at you that just derails everything. And, and it became as exciting as playing tunes, you know, with, with a band, you know, you just react and, uh, you have to react to certain, uh, situations and, and turn them in to something better. And sometimes you're reacting because it is a better situation, but, um, you know, and then at the end of the day, you reflect on how it went and you, you know, even if you, you didn't do a good job, <laughs> you get to wake up the next day and try it again. So it was a really great profession and that, yeah, you got to, uh, you'd be hard on yourself. Teachers can be really hard on themselves when, you know, a lesson doesn't go well or they, they didn't handle a situation perfectly, but you know, you get to reflect on it every day and wake up at five 30 in the morning and drive in and, try it again the next day. And, you know, it's like music, you know, you, you mess up on a solo or you, you know, you botch a gig and then, well, you get the next gig to, to kind of redeem yourself. So well, there's a lot of similarities and how it's yeah. approached and the preparation, but also the ability to adapt and, and improvise. So I think that's partially why I just, I, I really enjoy teaching like as much as I enjoy playing music because there's, it's a lot of similarity, but then you get to interact with people from a totally different perspective. Um, which is also fun instead of hanging out with musicians all day, just like, you know, you wouldn't want to hang out with teachers all day. Sorry, <laughs> teachers and musicians, but I enjoy <laughs> kind of interact. It's really enjoyable to, uh, you know, kind of get to be a fly on the wall to, to um, people. Most, I mean, most folks, you know, stick to one profession. They have a lot of hobbies, but, you know, like you folks, you know, straddling different professions, it's really fun to get to kind of jump between the two and, um, yeah, that, absolutely. That experience. I, I feel really lucky to, to have that experience. Um, so 
Yeah, yeah. I, I talk about, you know, when I was a teenager, when Aaron and I were playing music together, I would have told you I wanted to be a studio player and play all sorts of different music all the time. And in a sense, I've, I've you know, I've ended up doing that. I do, you know, whatever playing I want, but I end up, you know, working with all sorts of different kinds of music and, and doing all sorts of different things with that music. And so, you know, it, it's sort of the same thing. I just don't always have a saxophone in my hands. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, and, uh, yeah, I think, you know, and there's one of the things I had a hard time with music was that, you know, I don't really, I'm not a prolific writer. I don't just constantly write tunes. You know, I got, I, I wrote most of those tunes for the there, there record because I was feeling inspired by some music I had heard and meeting Mike and, and, and having played with, with John and Josh and thinking, oh, this would be a great band to record. Um, and so that left me more as a side, a side man, which I love doing. And I, I just love showing up and improvising, but I, I just didn't get that same fulfillment that I think a lot of my colleagues who are musicians have where it's just, you know, they, they're writing tons of tunes and they're connecting with their fans and their, you know, their fans are so grateful for the music. I mean, Jeff's a great example. That guy is like the most prolific writer ever. And he, yeah. he does so many great things and he connects, you know, fans from across genres and my other, you know, friends. And I, I just didn't have that. I didn't feel like I was making an impact in music the same way. And I felt like when I entered the teaching profession, you know, it was a good, it was a good experience. It was a learning experience. I learned every day from teaching. And at the end of the day, I walked away and thought, well, I, I tried to do something better for, for somebody else that I didn't always get when I played music. Well, I think you were so. successful in this music we've been talking about as far as having an intention with it and having it um, achieve that. And uh, one, again, you know, Aaron and I have spent a lot of time in advance of these interviews talking about the music and, and he had an experience with there, there, that might be a good closing point and i think we'll close the interview with that song yeah i uh, had been listening to uh to there there quite a bit and i just had it on in the car on on shuffle mm -hmm. uh and on my way to work um it was actually yesterday um and then since it was on shuffle i wasn't i didn't know what each of this the songs was mm -hmm. and i got to there there came on in the, in the shuffle and i'd been really preoccupied by something that had been getting me down and i was feeling stressed out, not sleeping well. And, uh, the song, uh, started and I kind of got lost in it. And by the end of it, I felt, uh, genuinely consoled and I felt better about my morning and things, things, things were, were going a lot better. And then I was like, I gotta check that one out. Cause that's the one I'd like to, to play on the, uh, the podcast. And it was there, there literally, uh, something that was, uh, uh, you know, at least titled as a, a song of consolation. Oh, and well. uh, it was, it was effective, uh, in that, uh, to that end. Well, thank you. I appreciate, appreciate that. Thanks for sharing that. And, uh, I'm glad the the consolation came through. It's, it was named, I actually wrote that one when I was in college. That's the only tune that dates back to probably 2008. <laughs> and, uh, uh, that's, I had read Catch-22. I didn't name it until the record. We made this record, but one of my mm -hmm. favorite books by Joseph Heller, Catch-22, and there's that scene where um, Snowden, one of the soldiers in the bomber, is mortally injured, mm. and Yosarian, the main character, it's this moment of humanity where, you know, it's a total kind of dark comedy and nothing is to be taken too seriously, but it's this moment where in the book he's 
absolutely serious and empathetic and trying to console um, Snowden, who's mortally wounded. And he says, there, 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 you'll be all right, or something like that. Um, and so I'm, I'm really uh, excited and honored that you, that, that uh, sentiment came through in, in the song and had that impact. So thanks for sharing. Thank you. for listening. Craft Brood Music, both the podcast and the streaming service, has the mission of promoting this music and these artists. We can't do that without ears on the music. So if you like what you've heard here, we're going to ask two small favors. First, tell someone about the podcast. Secondly, go to the App Store or Google Play, download the Craft Brood Music app, and try a free two-week trial of the streaming service. For more information, visit us at craftbroodmusic.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.